Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. I'm delighted on today's podcast to be joined by Dr. Laura Pfeiffer. Laura is one of the local GPs here in Methan and also happens to be my neighbour. Pretty big place, Methan. She describes her key areas in medicine as community care, lifestyle and preventative medicine, as well as being particularly interested in women's health. Outside of the amazing work she does within the community, Laura is a weapon on the trails and her bike, setting her up for a summer of some amazing results in triathlon. Laura, it's so great to have you on today. You said you have been on call, well, you're currently on call this weekend at the medical centre currently. How has it been today? Oh, hi, thanks um, so much for having me on. I feel really privileged actually to speak on your podcast after becoming an avid listener myself. Um, This weekend on call has actually touched wood um, anywhere near me. has been pretty good. Typical stuff we'd see in a weekend, mainly injuries, um, obviously still dealing with COVID stuff at the moment, um, and infections tend to be the, the flavour of the weekend so far, but um, touch wood, I don't have any calls uh, in the next hour um, and won't interrupt our recording. But obviously, apologies in advance if anything like that does happen. Yes, and it, this podcast may just abruptly stop if that does happen. <laughs> There'll be a part two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Laura, you have recently, talked about COVID, you've recently had it yourself. Are you all back to good health now and feeling 100%? Yeah, I guess that's a good question. If I'm honest, I'd say not 100%. And that's the main uh, symptom that I have um, seen and um, definitely feeling myself is probably the lack of energy or looking for your fifth gear um, in training. And I guess if you are somebody who does exercise regularly or um, some of the people that you would work with that are more, I would consider in that sort of pro-athlete type status, might be more uh, aware of that than others. Um, And my take on that would be that you're probably got a much higher VO2 max and you are probably more aware of any decreases in your fitness. So personally, I'd say quite happy working out in my comfortable zones, but definitely don't have that fifth gear and haven't really particularly tried. But um, yeah, I'd say getting there, uh, the energy levels, just have to manage that. And that's not just an exercise, but it's also in your workplace, um, social, family, resting time, just trying to increase as much as possible that downtime and keeping um, the schedules lighter than usual. Mm. 
And from what you've seen within the community of people having COVID, would you say the fatigue factor is like the biggest issue? Yeah, absolutely. I'd have to say most of my opinion here is anecdotal. Um, I work in Methven, which has a resting population around 2,500 people, but the medical centre itself has an enrolled list of about 5,000 people. We've been in our peak um, for our region in the last two weeks, having the highest number of positive cases per day, which is about 3.5% of your population, which doesn't sound like much, but that's maybe 30, 40 infections a day that we're dealing with. Um, And I'd say the majority of that would be fatigue that most people notice. And in the peak of their illness, which often is a day sort of three and four, the thick of your symptoms, there may be some really generally well people usually who will say actually a struggle just to get to the letterbox and back without feeling a sense of fatigue or just having a shower or putting a meal together is actually really fatiguing. Um, fortunately, it seems to be short-lived and particularly those people that are fully vaccinated seem to fare well. Uh, it's an interesting disease in itself, I think, in terms of those people who you might say are fit and well, um, who don't have medical problems. Um, they seem to have similar symptoms to even people that I would say I was quite concerned about. So we phone call those people that might have chronic lung disease or uh, be in treatment for cancer, have immune modulating therapy. Um, they don't particularly actually seem to be any worse hit. So it doesn't uh, pick and choose or make reason for who has more severe illness necessarily than others. Um, But definitely there is some differences there in vaccinated versus unvaccinated populations. Um, And possibly in uh, people uh, who are particularly overweight, I have to say, um, we are seeing more illness in those people. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, and that may be a more to do with what uh, inflammation happens in somebody who is carrying excess um, body weight. Mm, That's so interesting, eh? And yeah, I remember we were actually just talking about this podcast before we jumped on, but uh, the podcast I did with Anna, uh, episode two, I think, on long COVID and COVID, um, yeah, I was really surprised by her saying, you know, I thought someone, you know, who might be young and really fit and otherwise healthy would have a way better chance at, you know, not getting COVID too bad. But it's really interesting to hear that, you know, even people who may be immunocompromised actually aren't too bad. Um, so that's been really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did listen to that podcast. And the funny thing was that I listened to that podcast about an hour before I tested positive myself for COVID-19 <laughs> and was considering what my training and um, exercise regime would look like if I did myself um, catch COVID. And funnily enough, an hour later, I had a rat test that was positive. And uh, I thought it was a really informative interview and, and obviously knows her, her science. Um, but I guess as well, you have to take some of the advice into consideration. And I might have a slightly... Um, uh, not popular view, um, it might be a little bit more controversial, um, but I have grounded that based on uh, my interpretation of the science as well. And um, what other people, what I've read um, from different views, 
some considerations I think when you look at at some of that extreme advice around uh, if you have COVID don't exercise for three months some of that science and the studies that were done that informed that opinion were done on different populations to what we have in New Zealand so particularly Delta strain of the COVID virus versus what we've had predominantly in New Zealand sort of the BA1, BA2 um, variants it's slightly different in how they affect the um, inflammatory response in the body and also the studies were done on sort of partially vaccinated populations again in New Zealand we've had the benefit of having high coverage of vaccination so you can't really generalize that study or extrapolate it out to a population that is unlike the population the study was done on Um, so that's one thing I'd consider another thing I would consider is saying well I'm seeing you know um, a lot of heightened anxiety around how to manage after COVID. So I'm seeing that side of things. And I'm trying to be reassuring to people in that people have had flus and viruses before and they have recovered. The difference we have about COVID is it's the most highly studied virus that we've you know ever had um, in history. Plus it's a virus that we are actively testing for. Generally, when in the past over winter, if you've had a cold or flu, we don't do a respiratory panel or what looks like your PCR that people know about now. The nasopharyngeal PCR test, we do a respiratory panel of viruses. We don't do that on everyone. So we generally just say, hey, in the past, you've got a flu-like illness, rest, recover, go back your normal business. Your body will know how to fight this. And we don't necessarily know the long-term outcomes of that. Um, so I, you know, the long haul COVID side of things, there's a lot of anxiety there, but I also think you need to consider that in general, uh, how we've dealt with viruses in the past. My general advice has been, if you have fever or below neck symptoms, absolutely, you need to be more cautious, um, at least seven days of rest and then very gradual return to exercise. But if you don't have a fever and most of your symptoms are that sort of headache, stuffy nose, maybe a bit of a sore throat, they're fairly mild, yeah, absolutely fine, in my opinion, to go about light exercise after you're feeling recovered, your symptoms have gone. Go back in, see how you feel, take it step by step. But majority of people will fall more into that category. The mild illness, they'll start exercising again, get back into their general life um, and manage it quite well. So that's, that's got to be my general advice, really, for those people recovering from COVID-19. Listen to your body, and sometimes it's an honest conversation with yourself. Mm. And listening to your body and, you know, responding to how it's feeling too, not just trying to, you know, toughen up and push through if you're actually feeling quite average during a training session as well. So I have a few questions around the doctor side of things and I'm actually really interested because mm. I some of these questions I noted down I don't actually like I don't think we've discussed before more about like your study and Dunedin times mm. and yeah so I'm actually excited about this so what drew you into medicine in the first place? Uh, interestingly I always wanted to be a doctor um, I think we had a dress up mufti day at school when I was in what's what year two so when you're about six years of age um and it was something like dress as a a hero or something you want to something in the future I can't remember but I wanted to dress as a doctor 
and uh, I think a part of that probably came from an early exposure to the hospital system um, with uh, unwell family members that we, well, my mum in particular, um, in my younger years were in and out of hospital quite a lot and got to know some of her doctors and she had quite a um, rarer disease and that meant that... Um, you know, her care was just amazing. And I used to look up to her doctors and the way that they could come into a room, sit down, make her a cup of tea, explain where things were at, um, talk through. And just the, I just found it incredible that um, somebody could hold so much knowledge um, and also putting people at ease. Um, and that idea of being a curer or healer, um, I think, appealed to me. And then just as I went along, I think the strong sense of justice um, in terms of uh, trying to help people and having systems in place that actually make health the better choice or easier choice than having bad habits or bad health, um, illness and sickness, and how we can actually go about preventing that. Mm. Bit of a story to that one then. Yeah. And... If you don't mind me asking, what illness did your mother have? It's like a mixed Crohn's ulcerative colitis type disorder where she has uh, basically very little digestion, um, removed large, large sections of bowel. I think she's actually got no large and only partial small bowel. So massive in terms of, um, sort of constantly being on immune suppression medication and surgeries to remove ongoing sections of, of inflamed and damaged bowel to uh, reduce chances of things like um, obstruction and, and um, perforation of bowel, which are, mm. you know, things that can kill people. Oh, wow. Yeah, far out. So that's obviously gone on for quite a long time for her. Mm. Yeah, something that she had in her early 20s and back then you just gave people you know, whopping doses of steroids and kept cutting out bits of bowel. But now we have quite, um, and you would have worked with some of these people, I imagine, um, new biologic agents where you can target uh, specific aspects of someone's autoimmune um, disorders to dampen down that aspect of, their, uh, of the immune system. Um, so, yeah, very, you know, just the, the wonders of medicine that mm. continue to improve to help these people mm, incredible really yeah and, and did you think with that that maybe you'd be like you'd go down the specialist area of gastro or you know what pulled you to the areas you're interested in now mm. I think I definitely considered that at some point um what I loved about medicine was actually the breadth of it and the variety so I really struggled with um in my registrar years, trying to find my niche or my place. I think I always wanted to to cover all systems because I really, my philosophy is that you can't really ever treat one thing. Like you have to treat the person and the person is made up of so many variable parts um, that you have to consider all of their health. Um, and I think that's where, again, I eventually found my place in working in GP in the community. That makes sense now as to what you've just said with that. Yeah. And the lifestyle preventative approach of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, I've gone on to do a bit more study in lifestyle medicine. So um, I'm a member of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine and recently set international board certification on lifestyle medicine um, because 
that's the the approach I like to take for people is and it's not soft medicine I think that's where um, people often think lifestyle medicine is it's not soft medicine it's actually the foundation of medicine the foundation of health and everything we do and you know expensive procedures and fancy medicines is the layer on top of that and but the foundation is actually the part we're getting wrong and so we have to go back and address the root cause of illness rather than thinking uh, you know spending so much money at the other end of the fancy uh, interventions that you can do mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent, and that's such a you know common thing we'd see in the health system is it's always like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff there needs to be more money put into preventative medicine for sure Absolutely. Or a lot of it, it's treating symptoms, but it's not treating causes of mm-hmm. illness. Um, yeah. There's a lot I can do to treat symptoms, but I wanted to know why. Why am I treating the symptom? Where did this come from? And if I treat the cause, surely the symptom resolves as a side effect. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear to you for, for many years of your life or younger life that you wanted to be a doctor. And then you obviously went off to Otago. Woohoo! Yes, <laughs> great university, and chose to pursue medicine. So, honestly, what was it like studying? Because I know through my friends who are now doctors as well that that first year is pretty tough and very competitive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the health sciences was maybe a class of about two thousand back when I did it, and I think the top hundred and twenty people that wanted to apply for medicine got through. Um, I was at the younger end of the, you know, um, starting university, so I was pretty naive. Um, I hadn't really established good study techniques. I sort of had always flown by with just a a mediocre effort at high school. Um, So that was a big learning curve for me was actually how to learn on my own, how to study. Um, but I, I went into Arana Resident Hall my first year, made some friends from all around the country, absolutely loved it. I was a nerd. I wasn't naturally bright. Um, I had to work at it. So rather than going out to all hours on Saturday night, I was tucked up in bed by 10 o'clock so that I could be at the library at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Um, but that's what worked for me was that constant sort of repetition and learning and, and exploring more than maybe what was just in the lectures so that I could understand um, the pathology, um, the physiology, the microbiology to actually understand it. I had to go right back down to basics. And I guess, um, again, that's why I approach medicine the way I do is I want to um, understand why this has happened, Mm. that curiosity of why people are in my office presenting the way they are, Mm -hmm. what happened before it, what was the upstream, Mm, mm, nice yeah um so yeah I wasn't much of a partier sorry I've got no great stories there I was a nerd and um spent my time in a library and um but fortunately had some friends around me that were very similar too um and that helped us all get through I think um that you always had someone to walk to the library with and eat your sandwich out on the lawn with um so I spent my three years pre-clinical years at Dunedin and loved it um spent the next three clinical years in Christchurch Hospital. I stayed in Christchurch Hospital for uh, my house surgeon years one and two and a year of registrar. Um, So just, you know, the next step up, sort of going from the apprentice up through um, the ranks, basically, (laughs) having a bit more responsibility as a registrar, 
And I took that year to try and find my niche again, circular around the hospital, did quite a lot of neurology. I really like the brain and neurology um, fascinates me still. Um, did a lot of obs and gynae, delivered lots of babies um, and loved that side of things. But uh, again, you have to consider the way it impacts your life and also while well, delivering a, a baby isn't an amazing um, when a birth goes wrong, it really affects you for quite some time and mm. you know hats off to those people that can cope with that but I knew I wasn't going to be able to manage that for the next 40 50 years of my life and career um and then I I think I applied for GP in that final year um and went to Nelson actually for a couple of years worked in the community there and then met my partner and landed in Ethan yes yeah and for anyone listening, although Laura is also very sporty, her partner is also very sporty and has just completed the longest day a few months ago. <laughs> so I feel yeah. like there might be a, a tandem in you two one day. Yeah, look, super proud of him. And he loves the coast to coast. Um, I don't think I'll ever get in the kayak, well, at least not to that degree. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's great to live with somebody who also loves you know, doing the same sorts of things that you do. And um, our idea of a date is going out on our mountain bikes or going out, running somewhere, entering a competition to try and beat each other. Um, and that really, uh, I think, is the balance that you need outside of work too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, hey, the best kind of dates are those sort of adventure dates. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, Absolutely. although you admit that you're a, a nerd, um, do you have any funny flatting stories? Like whereabouts did you flat in Dunedin? Because they could always be some good stories in the housing that we lived in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't live in them again. And I, <laughs> I don't know how we ever lived on like $160 a week or whatever it was the student loan was. I just, I have no idea how we managed, but um, we did. Um, a lot of rats. <laughs> I can't really think of anything in particular. Um, but I, I always lived with, well, I lived with a bunch of girls in my second year in a flat on Anzac Ave down by the railway station. So we were close to the farmer's market, which was great. Um, we had a bit of fun. I often got pranked on and fell for it every single time. Um, I had my bed collapsing in the middle of the night from slits <laughs> that was like stolen that I didn't realise and then had no sleep and rocked up to an exam with like, zero sleep um those sorts of things it was all in good humor um and then my third year I lived up on the hill with actually a mixed flat which was really good a couple of friends that were studying for physio instead of medicine and that's when I realized that actually I needed to get some friends that weren't doing medicine um just to give yourself a wee bit of a break from talking about it and um, a different perspective um and yeah we're always you know you do your red card things where you'd be a bit silly and no one gets hurt and it's good fun um yeah but I, I hate the cold which I say living in an alpine town like Methven um, <laughs> so I really struggled with the like cold in Dunedin hey um where were you living it's a different kind of cold in Dunedin though isn't it it's like wet and gray where the hair's like crisp and frosty um yeah yeah I this uh, first year flatting I was on fourth street and we we're right by a play center on a hill so it literally got no sun at all all day um then I was up on Duchess Ave in the tree line above Carrington which is 
freezing again no sun and then I was on Duke Street which was actually a really cool flat and then I was obviously in Christchurch for placement after that but yeah again all very damp cold moldy (laughs) yeah but you would have had nice access to places like Ross Creek and all the good places Signal Hills are good places to run Uh, were you into running then Yes, yeah, I discovered, unfortunately, I only discovered in my final year in Dunedin, um, Ross Creek, loved it, so cool up there, but yeah, I always loved running up around like Murray Hill and along Roslyn, and it was beautiful, yeah, really nice, yeah, yeah, yeah. but no, good old days, I miss Dunedin, but it's um good to move on from that too, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think I could live there again, but definitely a nice place to visit. Mm, for sure, yeah. yeah. And with your current work day to day now, because you do a bit of lifestyle stuff as well, but at the Methan Medical Centre, what's a typical day for you? Like, you know, is it literally all just patient contact or do you do other bits and pieces in there too? Yeah, good question. I think um, what GPs actually do is probably not, um, people aren't as aware of what we we cover now, Um, you know, Back in the day, I think GPs, you saw for your sore ears and throat and mild illnesses like that. But actually the breadth of what we cover, particularly maybe since lockdowns and not having access to specialists, um, we cover everything. Um, And the wait lists are so long that actually there's very little point in referring people, which has some benefits of a less paperwork for me, but also means that you're constantly upskilling to manage people in the community that would have been managed in hospital for the last two or three years. Um, The thing I love about working in Methvin is that we are a rural practice. Um, We're sort of 30 to 40 minute drive from the Ashburton Hospital, which is sort of, you know, um, secondary care rather than tertiary care, and at least an hour by road um, to Christchurch Hospital. So we definitely deal with a lot more acute stuff here, which I love. We're a prime practice, which means any time the ambulance is called to somebody who is a status one, status two, someone who's got um, sort of an imminent threat, life-threatening condition like chest pain or not breathing, um, we get called out to. So I do that um, a 24-hour on-call one day a week and then like this weekend, we're on call from 6pm on Friday to 9am on Monday and continue to work all through the week either side of that. So definitely like plenty of hours here. Um, and what I see on a general day can be so varied. Um, we can be seeing um, mental health, I'd say, is a, a large part. Um, particularly at the moment, there's a lot of stressed individuals in my community from a harvest season that didn't go particularly well. Um and um, so that farmers are really struggling a bit at the moment. Um, I can be dealing with, well, chronic disease is a huge part of what we deal with and the hospitals too. So there'd be, you know, 60, 70% of what we see is chronic disease. Um, that's, you know, people with heart disease, lung diseases, um, even, you know, osteoarthritis. Um, diabetes is a massive um, area as well. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about diabetes. Um, and then I can do all sorts of things. I can see a newborn baby for a six-week check. I can deal with a mum having postnatal depression from um, from birth. And can be dealing with people with cancer um, on 
chemotherapy, I can be diagnosing cancer um, and delivering that news to people. Um, but then I can also be doing something like contraception. I do a lot of um, women's health, so um, inserting and removing um, contraceptive devices. So that kind of breaks up your day, little procedural stuff. I do quite large skin excisions. I've done some plastics placements and extra study as a GP kind of specialising in, in skin lesion removal. So we take off some quite big things, which I like. But then, again, you get someone walking through the door who's tried to chop their leg off with their chainsaw or grinding metal into their eyes. And so your day is so variable, and that's what I love about it. Um, but also the connections and the continuity of care Um so important um and again at the moment probably 20 percent of my day is um managing covid patients and, and making practice systems to deal with that workload on top of our normal workload because we haven't stopped doing gp we're still doing gp plus covid on top of so mm. yeah it's just managing juggling that side of things wow that's Matt, like such a wide range. It must be really interesting being a GP. <laughs> like you never know what's going to walk through the door. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I think that's exciting. It's also a privilege to really be seeing people, they walk through the door because they're feeling like something's not right. So they feel vulnerable. This is them coming into an environment that they're not necessarily comfortable in. Uh, and I think that's, one of my, the art of medicine rather than the science, which is the part you, you learn only through experience. Um, so, yeah, day can be so variable. Um, the mental health side of things is huge. It's stress, it's depression, it's eating disorders. Um, you know, it's, it's major stuff uh, in this person's life. Suicidality is massive um, and probably comes through the door more often than people would expect. Um, you know, at least two or three times a week I'll be dealing with someone who's talking to me about suicide. Um, and and these are the often, you know, the, the most time-consuming and energy-consuming um, consultations but also have the highest um, value and um, I think re reward when you see a difference in these people when they come back. That must be really hard because I don't know how um, maybe you work, but, you know, from the GPs generally you go in and they have like 15 minutes with you. I'm not sure if that's different for you, but like to come mm. to have someone come in and like, you know, you're dealing with quite significant mental health problems and, mm. you know, you're under so much time pressure, but you really need to give that person the time of day and, you know, the care they need. That must be quite challenging. People, I give people the time they need. So if someone needs to sit in my office and cry um, and and scream and kick and do whatever they need to do to make them feel better, I will give them as much time as they need. There's no point watching the clock in that situation because you need to be there for them. They need to be heard and listened to. You need to reflect back with them. You need to create a safety plan and you may need to involve other people in your practice team to help you support that person the best that they can. Because at the end of the day, um, if I'm not the person they need to help them on their journey, I'm not going to hold on to them. I need to involve the person that's going to help that that's, that's going to help that patient. Um, that's your responsibility of care. Hundred percent, yeah. And I think it's always important for people to keep that in mind. Like if you're waiting for an appointment with a clinician and they're running late, 
we don't we don't do it on purpose there's generally a reason and like if yeah if you need an extra half an hour with someone well sorry they need that um yeah and I think um that's a good point um sometimes we're running late it's not because we want to be that means that we're also home an hour later than we want to be or we skip lunch or um exactly or anything like that to try and catch up that time because we don't want to to um stuff other people around by for sure um but equally um yeah we have a, a responsibility of care and some people will need uh, a lot more time and equally um, that also means there are some people that come and they don't need 15 minutes it's quite straightforward and hopefully that balances out at the end of the day mm-hmm. and with the mental health you talked about being in a rural area and from experience of where you've been elsewhere in the country would you say it's quite high in rural areas versus like say the city yep yeah and I think there's multiple factors for that um one I think a lot of um the pressures in a rural community are higher in terms of people's livelihoods um they if they don't work they don't get paid or if something's not going well if there's less control in the sorts of jobs that they do um, there's often a lot of underpaid jobs in rural communities. Um, I think the support for people is much, much lower. Um, it, for example, at the moment, I can't get somebody in to see a counsellor for eight weeks, and that's um, massively frustrating. So not only just to see a counsellor, but if you had any specific requirements that a person wanted about their counsellor to be, say, certain age group, male, female, certain interests, ethnicity, uh, I just can't guarantee any of those things. So it's really, if unless it's an imminent, um, you know, uh, someone's talking about actively committing suicide, they can't get seen urgently, and that's frustrating. Um, And I think as well, there's still a little bit of that Kiwi culture where you don't talk about it you bottle it up, you keep carrying on, carrying on, and then there's a, a point where it does come to a hit where people, it's a pressure cooker situation, it's built up, and there's the last straw that breaks the camel's back, and people are often quite far down the path, getting close to rock bottom before they can seek help. Mm. Yeah, mm. gosh. it's um, Yeah, it's often something like from the outside that, you know, you just don't know what else, you know, someone else is going through. And I think particularly, like you said, this round Methin and Canterbury, like the summer's been shocking. So I can imagine, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's been so stressful for many farmers out there. Yeah, it's not been great. Um, with the eating disorders, what would be like the most mm-hmm. common disorder you would see in the community? Probably uh, a subset of bulimia, um, so binge eating, restricting uh quite a bit of anorexia actually um both ends of life um i have some patients and teenagers um, dealing with anorexia um, quite severely um, and also people who have lived with anorexia right up until their 60s and 70s and are still dealing with the um health outcomes from that um so those would be the yeah the main the main um, things I imagine that's similar for you um, and what you would see yeah 
Yeah, I would say um, binge eating is a huge problem um, and people mm. often very ashamed to come out and speak about it as well, but it's definitely the most prevalent, yeah. Yeah, and I think something I've learned over time is not necessarily that it, you know, I, I had believed it was much more common in women and I'd see it probably almost a 50-50 split, whether that's something that's just changing in all populations or if it's just in the current population I work with. Um. But yeah, definitely. And I think the main thing about eating disorders is that people often themselves don't acknowledge it because they don't think they fit a stereotype. Like they don't think, you know, well, I'm not skin and bone or I'm not um, the whatever you would think of when you think of somebody with anorexia. So they don't even in themselves acknowledge it as a problem. And it's not until somebody else raises a concern that they may be think about it a little bit more um yeah um, and it's often concerns from relatives that are the first red flag for these people Mm. yeah I think being in denial is one of the key indicators Mm. yeah 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 okay so that that's given us a really good idea of just how much you work with in a day which is fairly impressive actually um what would you say are some of the best parts about being a doctor I, um, the privilege, I think, of seeing into somebody's life um, that actually seeing the outcomes of of change um, is, for me, the most rewarding part of the job. Um, the frustration I had working in, in hospitals was that you only really saw somebody for not even 1% of the year that, of, that, of that year of their life, um, and you never knew what happened, and your job really in a, a, a health system under strain was to get someone maybe 70% better um, and type A personality uh, likes to get things 100% better so I was frustrated that I was never seeing the outcomes um, so yeah I think that's the brilliant part of the community is actually seeing people and seeing them for 15 minutes but once a month or every three months whatever that is they need and seeing that they're working alongside them and understanding what home life is actually like for that person, that your set um, pathway or checklists may not apply to this person. The typical management plan may not apply to that person and working with individualisation and tailorising your plan. Um, yeah, thinking differently, using your resources more effectively and and, and currently where I'm working, I just love the community feel that we have organisations around town that look after each other. We have Lions Clubs that are out delivering medicines to people uh, with COVID or groceries to people that actually genuinely care for one another and look out for each other. I think that's a pretty special place to work. Methin is an awesome place. Like, I think we do have bragging rights that it's one of the best towns in New Zealand. <laughs> Yeah, we must say that we must also say, please don't all move here because it won't be the same. Come and visit us, absolutely, but don't move here. Yeah, visit, come for a ski, go to the hot pools. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I can totally relate with you regarding what it's like to be in the hospital, and that was one of the key drivers of why I, um, you know, really pursued both private practice and also dabbled in the outpatient scene because I felt the same. You know, you'd get referrals, you'd go and see a patient for all of about 10 minutes minutes because you know about 50 other medical professionals have to see them you try and do an intervention when they're feeling miserable and unwell and don't really want to see you let's be honest (laughs) 
and then yeah. you carry on and you might never see that person again and I it just felt like I I wasn't being as effective and doing what I really could do as an effective dietitian and I found that really frustrating oh exactly right and I think for you you would um that you can't actually change behavior in 15 minutes no um, and that's the, the exciting part I think about being um, a dietitian or working in the lifestyle medicine and fields is that actually the first part we need to get right is how do you change behavior how do you create a new habit how do you not just fuel these changes on uh, willpower because we know willpower is a finite resource and it doesn't last um, and those are the things that aren't particularly appealing to people because it's not quick it's mm. a long process mm. Mm. yeah so like habit changing and or from your perspective like the motivational interviewing would be a big part of some of your work but from a mm. lifestyle medicine perspective what are some like go-to tips that you'd commonly discuss with your patients yeah um i think finding your real why um is important so for example and i don't really like using the term even but like weight loss um would be something that uh, is actually very effectively done through um, lifestyle medicine. So if somebody says to me, um, I want to lose weight, and I'll say, why? And I'll say, oh, um, because I want to feel fitter. I say, well, why do you want to feel fitter? And they say, oh, um, well, because I used to love playing golf, and I haven't gone and played golf now for 10 years because I don't think that um, my weight stops me from doing it. So I said, well, what would stop you tomorrow from going and playing golf even if you could only manage two or three holes? And they're like, oh, well, nothing. I said, well, don't wait for your weight to change. Go and play golf because your weight will be the consequence of actually getting out and involving yourself in these things. So, yeah, I think about like deeping, going deeper into somebody's why, the most common whys are for family, for wanting to participate more actively in life um, and health, to feel better about themselves Definitely there's some appearance and aesthetics, but I don't think that that's ever going to be a, a why that lasts. So trying to really deep dive down into what's the why, what is your self-motivation. The next thing would be prioritising. So um, what makes it easy for you and I to get out of bed on Sunday morning and go running? Why can you and I do that but somebody else can't? Um, and often that is prioritising. Um you can always find minutes in your day. I really struggle to believe that somebody can't find 20 minutes to do something in their day. It might just be more creative about how you do it. Um, and the next part would be habits. So when I'm working with someone and perhaps I say, look, to me, exercise is medicine for the first few weeks. If you're doing nothing, if you've sat on the couch for the last two, two decades, um, I don't want you to even manage 10 minutes. I want you to just put your shoes on. And if you walked the letterbox and back, but you did it three times that week, that's fine because that's creating the habit. You're building the routine. Uh, and I don't want you to be self-critical of what you do and how it makes you feel, but I just want you to do something for three or four times a week. And we work on really small steps and we build. Often I make it so ridiculously easy that people come back and they say to me in two weeks, look, I did that. It was so easy. And I'm like, great. That's brilliant. I wanted it to be easy. I want you to see that you can do it. 
and then all we're going to do is just take a small baby step in the next two weeks we're just going to focus on one small change Mm -hmm. and while it seems slow they come back in six months and they can't believe how much they have managed Mm -hmm. and And so we've got to set people up for success Yes, exactly. If you make it ridiculously easy, they'll achieve it. And then because they feel so good about that, they're like, sweet, I can do a little bit more. Like, I have achieved this. And, yeah, from there it continues. So I really like that. And the other thing with the time management is one of the biggest barriers I see in people as well is, you know, I don't have the time to do that. Just, you know, I've got family, I've got to do training, I've got my job. And I guess we all have things we juggle each day. And I always ask someone, you know, how much time would you spend scrolling on your phone each day? Mm. Because most people spend way too much time on their phones and it's not exactly productive. And generally, Mm. if you count up all that, it's scarily quite a long time. And I'm like, well, you know, that could be time in your day where you could actually be going out and doing a 20 minute run or, um, you know, something else that's more productive towards your why. Yeah. And that's it. You've got to value the change you're making. And now if you don't spend time now on your health, you're just making more time for illness later. And I'll use that line a lot with patients saying, if you don't make time for your health now, you're only making time for illness later. And if you want to health and productive years of life, not just to live a long life, then you need, you've got a golden window now to make a change. And if you don't make the change now, it's getting harder and harder to reverse ill health. Mm. and how do you deal with people there's there's always some but you know they're really really hard to just even do those small steps like you feel like you're just hitting a bit of a brick wall how do you deal with those kind of patients um sometimes yeah and I think that that there are some people um like that and I know what you're meaning um Sometimes it means coming back to the drawing board with those people and saying, can you identify the obstacles now in advance and can you come up with the solution? Because you can burn yourself out trying to force people in a certain direction, but often they do have the answers themselves and our role as health professionals isn't necessary to carry those people. Like I'm not going to go around to your house and knock on your door and tell you to put your walking shoes on but I am happy to walk alongside you. And so I think that's probably one aspect is saying, can you identify the the obstacle and can you come up with the solution to the problem that works for you? Um, So going back to the drawing board with them. uh, And secondly, I think also trying to facilitate an environment for people where subconsciously the the choice is health. Um, So not just for that individual, but this is, I guess, a more public health measure is saying, why don't we set up our environments for people to subconsciously uh, perform health exercise, for example. If you live in a city or a town where everybody goes hiking and biking on the weekends, the chances are you're probably going to start going hiking or biking on the weekends. Or if you're local supermarkets have all the healthy foods um, clearly at the front door rather than the cheap Easter eggs at the moment and things like that, then it's easier to say no to those things. So, again, we can't necessarily just blame those individuals for having a lack of willpower to change, but also the poor um, environment that they're going out to, which makes it a harder choice to even get started and to stick to those um, changes. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting though with the community because it is like contagious what everyone else is kind of doing. Because gosh, if you come to Methan, you'll either be signed up for the coast to coast or you'll be up the mountain skiing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's it. And you know, like um, there's always pluses and minuses of having those things like your Stravas and all that sort of thing. When you, you know, get out of bed at 10 o'clock on Sunday and you see that half your friends have already gone out for a hike or something like that, then you sort of go, oh, you know what, I've got no excuse. I really should get out there and do that. Um, but, you know, I think as well as health professionals, we can model good behaviour. They can see, you know, a place like this. They see Kushler out running up the road. Okay, well, maybe if she can do it, and she's one of the busiest women in town, then surely I can find time to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are all things as well. You've got to role model health. Role model what you want everyone else to be doing as well. Walk the talk. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, I know we've had this conversation on one of our runs before, actually, with the Strava. Like, I have hot and cold periods with it because sometimes I'm like, this is just not good for my mental health. Like, especially if you're a bit, you know, maybe got a bit of a niggle going on or maybe your training's not going quite so well and then everyone else is, like, doing these amazing training sessions and honestly, it can make you feel really crap. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Um, And you find yourself worrying about not worrying like thinking about things that you didn't even notice like I don't know I get those emails saying you just lost your laurel wreath on the most or <laughs> your queen of the mountain or something I'm like I don't even know I had that and now I care that I don't have it like and why that's like oh no you just lost your record like ah, oh, that just feels a bit stink doesn't it and so I think turning off those email notifications is a good step and using Strava really for yourself like absolutely um if you're somebody who trains and you train for an event yep right up before your event you're performing great and then in the weeks after you have to you have to have some months where your training's light you might be dealing with an injury or fatigue or you're prepping your body to, to start a hard training sessions again and it's okay to have those times and nobody really cares other than yourself what your stats on Strava look like mm. um, but it's easy in a world like where we do compare ourselves to others to get what up in that so yeah I completely agree with you and there's been times where it's actually just easier to not bother looking at Strava mm. um, or for example um, and yeah signing out from it I didn't sign up for it until about a year and a half ago everyone had said oh why don't you sign up for this blah 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 and to be honest, I probably enjoyed training better before I had it, but the benefit of Strava is also you find new routes to do or um, training buddies, which I think is really cool, particularly if you move to a new town. Like when I moved to Methven, I didn't know people. When you find people by, oh, they're on the same route that I do all the time and you just team up, which is quite nice. Mm. But, yeah, I think don't compare yourself to others is the main take-home for any of that, those apps and social media. Mm. It's hard the way, yeah. Like, yeah, generally I do love Strava. I think it's good fun, but there's definitely a downside to it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very good. Thanks for your insights on that. Hey, um, one other question around your work as a doctor. Do you have, like, a really funny story or pastime that you could share with us? Oh, I do, but some are probably inappropriate, Kushler. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I, can, I haven't rated a podcast E yet, so this could be my first one. <laughs> Oh, really? Okay. Um, oh, gosh. Um, um, funny things. Um, mm, 
I should have thought about this. Um, I mean, I've removed some questionable things from orifices, I will say that. <laughs> um, there are places you shouldn't put deodorant bottles. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, what else? Um, and that always just gives you a laugh because I think, you know, there's just certain things. Um, it must I've be seen... so hard going into, like, do, and obviously you have to be really professional and, like, that poor person, but it must be really hard not to, like keep it together sometimes <laughs> yeah you do you have to yeah you have to keep the chatter amongst you know who you're dealing with with those people uh, that patient to quiet chat um to take in places like ed where curtains aren't soundproof um uh yeah i i did some work for the police for a year um and that was interesting some of the stuff you go to there and and seeing people that are held in to what's called the watch house for a night and often they're there because they're very intoxicated um or they're out in the community causing havoc um and usually that's the consequence of alcohol or drugs and those people have some fascinating things i once had a young guy I was called into the watch house to see in the early hours of Sunday morning. He was found on the beach naked, throwing sticks in the air and barking like a dog. And, and when I saw him, he was just continuing to bark like a dog. Um, but in time to like, if I asked him a question, he would just kind of bark and it would be like several barks. Or if it was a long sentence, there'd be like 10 barks. Um, and he was clearly obviously on something. He'd been running through the bushes, throwing sticks in the air and was on something. Um, so that was entertaining. Um, <laughs> How do you deal with that? Oh, man. Yeah, I think the police were more just like, he's not really hurting anyone. Um, can you just drug him to sedate him? I said, well, if he's not hurting anyone, then I'm not going to sedate him. You're just going to have to put up with him barking for the next 12 hours or however long it takes for whatever he's taken to wash out of his system. Like, oh, man. You know? You can't sedate someone for convenience. Um, yeah, and that's all right. Um, but, yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, little old people say funny things sometimes, particularly I think um, often when you're uh, um, in your 30s and you're not married and they've always got a wee, you know, they come in for a, their checkup, but they just want to talk about you and what are you doing with your life. <laughs> those are some entertaining stories often uh being female you're always the nurse never a doctor um and i'm young uh i think i usually get asked uh, about my age because i look like i'm 16 and that's fine <laughs> i just say you should brush it off laugh and say that's the benefit of not smoking and exercising every day um and you could look 16 too if you decide to take up those habits and just use it as a bit more of a motivator Mm. yeah mm. but you'll have the same thing people will say you look like you should be at high school yes well with being a dietitian people actually make remarks on body weight and it's honestly it's usually the older generation and I think they feel because they're coming in and seeing a dietitian and they have a preconceived idea that I'm just going to talk to them about weight, that they have to make a comment on my body or my shape and size. Um, and it's never from like a really nasty place or anything. Like they're just trying to, I guess, break the ice or I'm not sure. Sometimes I do find it frustrating that they can't just 
not make those comments. Um, but I guess that's just part of being a dietitian um, that people feel that they, they can make a comment on our weight and body shape. Yeah, and I think, um, and that might be a question for you, but I think um, I sometimes think in a small community as well, when I'm at the supermarket, I almost look to see who's in the aisles before I grab a treat food because I'm worried what think. (laughs) And I remember when I was at the hospital, there was this awesome paediatric dietitian and she was great. And you'd always see her out on the weekend with a massive like stack of pancakes with extra bacon and whatever. And I was like, you know what, go her. Like she probably doesn't eat like that every day. That's her treat. She knows obviously, you know, the dietetics. And I thought, why would I expect that a dietitian would be there eating something ridiculously boring and healthy all the time? And that's life, you know, like you can't be perfect all the time. So Again, I think that's being real, isn't it, that mm. with people? Because that's honest. Like, yeah. none of us are perfect 100% yeah. of the time. We're just people too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great, Laura. I've loved hearing about um, some of your experiences and day-to-day doctor work. And, yeah, it's, it's really cool to hear. So thank you for sharing some of those stories. Hey, I was just wanting to finish with actually asking about you um, so you've had a summer of triathlons, but what's next for you? What's on the horizon for events or goals? Yeah, it's a little bit funny. I sort of stumbled into triathlon, you know, take it up when you, I was 29, take it up when you're 29. Um, I had never ridden a road bike until August of last year. Um, and my first triathlon was a half Ironman in December. And I remember being terrified because I hadn't actually quite figured out clipping in and clipping out of my shoes. <laughs> so I was right in the deep end um, and actually, you know, great learning experience. So I, I've picked up a completely new sport um, in the last six months and fortunately did quite well in um, a few events. Um, I have the option of going to Slovakia or Abu Dhabi at the end of the year to represent New Zealand um, in the standard mid-distance triathlon. Um, wow. Yeah, so I'm kind of just having a bit of downtime considering that option now that the world's a bit more open and whether or not that might be something I dabble in. Um, As my background was ultramarathon running and while I still love the trails, um, sometimes, particularly in winter, I find I'd much rather run than do the other disciplines of triathlon, so I'll probably end up doing a bit more running struggling with the distance side of things after working on speed the last few months. But, um, yeah, so I think there would be probably some half Ironmans to do at the end of the year, maybe Taupo or Rotorua Suffer in New Zealand. Whether I do go overseas will be just a, probably more for a holiday and an excuse. Um, and, but, yeah, so really enjoying picking up a new discipline really and got to still learn a lot more biking skill and swimming skill technique and yeah it's been great Mm. and you're a natural amazing you've done so well this summer oh thank you (laughs) um I think yeah when you put your mind to it and prioritize this is the first time I ever had a coach and that side of things just I think helped a lot Mm. and your coach is Mr Roderick Yeah. yeah yeah Who's great. Um, I, he might have taught you at high school, maybe. He sure did. Him and Glenn Curry. Yep. <laughs> yep. And look, I was just watching um, James's daughter, Bria, who's 20, and in, in the, um, 
uh, the series of triathlon this morning where, you know, she got like fifth or sixth um, and these are the girls competing for the Commonwealth Games. So it's just very cool to see triathlon like up and coming um, as a sport and it's being marketed now in the world to be a lot more um, spectator friendly with like your Super League triathlon. So if you haven't heard of that, definitely have a look at Super League triathlon. Some very cool um, YouTube videos and stuff of just like where triathlon is going, which is cool. Awesome. That's great. So cool. And of all the events you've done, because you've done quite a few crazy ultras and all sorts over the years, what would be like your absolute favourite that you've ticked off? Uh, Probably Taupo 100k um, end of 2020. And that was like for multiple reasons. Um, I think... One was the challenge of completing 100 kilometres in a day. Two was the crazy people I had supporting me, which was very cool. Um, So I had some friends doing the shorter, the 50 and the 24K events. And um, fortunately, I managed to hit the 50K mark when they were all there and they came out with signs and dressed up. And it was like a pit stop, threw me on my bum, changed my shoes, topped up my water bottles and I was looking forward to like my 50k stop and it did, it was like over in 30 seconds because they were like, you're doing well, quick, eat this, drink this, here's your shoes, out you go. Um, so I was like, oh, I plan to actually sit and have something to eat anyway. Um, and then coming through the finish line and just um, had my dad there, which was very cool. Um and all my friends had finished. So it was just like that cool feeling when you took off a goal that you wanted to do, but you're also surrounded by really um, awesome support crew and people that make the event and everyone on the tracks or the trails those that day were out there achieving their own goal. And I think that's the cool part of those events is that people from all walks of life just getting to the finish line in any shape or form that they do it and that sense of achievement at the end, which was really cool. Um, managed to come second, which was very cool um, amongst some sort of, you know, um, pro athletes that do like ultra Ironman and all sorts of things, which was pretty cool as well to be within like 10 minutes of the leader um, over such a massive distance. Um so yeah, I think that event, and it's such a beautiful place to run. Mm. Like you can't, you can't forget about the pain in your legs when you're looking out at the scenery. Mm. That's phenomenal. Gosh, I, I just, um, I think um, the the main part and that is there's nothing really about me that actually that's special. It's it's the um, maybe the part that's special is the work ethic, and I think that's something that um, you've got to prioritize hey like if you've got a dream or something that you really want to do like I said I wasn't the brightest kid going into health sciences but I was willing to work every minute of every day towards something that I wanted to do and I wanted to honestly get to the end and say look I gave it my all and if my all isn't good enough I'm okay with that and I won't feel like a failure Mm. and that's again for anyone who's are trying to work towards a goal now is the same thing you know if you work at something and you're honest with yourself and you work at it as hard as you can every minute of every day you jump every obstacle that's in your path you can't fail you just you know uh, uh, yeah so I think that's when you feel like the greatest achievement is when you gave something your all yeah 
success doesn't come down to luck. Mm. No, gosh, no. I mean, yeah. Mm. If anything, it's probably the reverse. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, cool. Look, Laura, it's been so good to have you on today. It's been a really good discussion and you've given us so many insights into what you do and um, being a doctor. So I really appreciate that. And yeah, we haven't had any phone calls, so no emergencies, which no. is good. <laughs> no. Um, that is open. <laughs> yeah. If people want to reach out and have any questions, would you be open to that? Like, how can they maybe get in touch with you? Yeah. Um... Yeah, no, like I'm, I'm an open book. Um, I Obviously, where I work, we see patients that are enrolled with us, but in terms of just general questions, um, I can never comment on someone's personal situation without able, being able to assess them, and I think that's for good reason. Um, but, you know, I'm quite happy if someone wants to send me a message through Instagram or Facebook or email, then quite happy and um, to, to answer questions or um, meet up with like-minded people who might want to start their own journey with lifestyle medicine or health. Um, yeah, just want to be a source of support and resources. But yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. And hey, I think we're overdue for a bit of a, a run and a catch up too. So we should make, make plans <laughs> oh, for that. Overdue. It's been like months. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks so much, Laura. Talk soon. No worries.